Welcome to the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network, a weekly broadcast sponsored by CBC Coaching, hosted each week by industry speaker, coach, author, and educator, Jerry Eisenhower. Our presentations are produced to assist business owners and managers in turning their business dreams into their business realities. And now, here's your host, Jerry Eisenhower. Hey there, and I want to welcome you once again to the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network. This is sponsored by CBC Coaching, and we put this show on every week. And our whole mission, our whole reason for doing this is to help people in the chimney and fireplace industry how to get ahead, how to reach their dreams in life, how they can make their business dreams their business realities. So each and every week, what we do is we try to locate a great guest that we can come on and share some of their beliefs, some of what they've done in their lives, and share possibly some secrets and even some gold nuggets with you. So this week, I've got a special guest on the show, and I actually met this guy many years ago, probably around 1983, 1984 range, and I walked into a, at that time, was a Woodhing Alliance show. It's now the HPBA show, but there was a guy there, and he had a camera inside of a piece of flexible stainless steel pipe. And all of a sudden, I looked over there, and there was a TV screen showing the inside of that pipe. And I said to myself, self, that looks right interesting. So you need to go over there and talk to this guy and see what was going on. So I did, and I walked over, and I met a fellow. His name was Tom Urban. And Tom had developed up a system for the interior video inspection of a chimney system. It was like this is the next level and something that could be big. So after that, I got to know Tom. Got to have I have bought a lot of his product over the years. Found out it was a good thing. But I also know Tom from another side because we actually traveled together. We presented seminars. We were actually known as one time as the Tom and Jerry show that we went around the country. Still upset he always got top billing on that. But that's beside the case. So today, my special, special guest is Tom Urban from the Esteban Corporation, who is the manufacturer of the Chim Scan, which is a tool that is now used by many, many chimney sweeps across the USA. So, Tom, are you out there? Are you ready to rock today, brother? Yes, yeah, certainly am, Jerry. How are you doing today? Uh, man, I'm great. I'm back home today. I've been on the road the last couple of weeks, been doing swats all over the country, so I'm sitting in my office today. So, hey, this was a great day to get together with you. So, Tom, my first question to you is, how did you get into chimney service business? Because at one time, you were a chimney sweep, and you were doing some pretty unique things. I believe you were in Pennsylvania. I'd like for you to tell me what town you were in in Pennsylvania. But let's talk at first, how did Tom Urban become a chimney sweep? Okay, it started all back in 1978. And uh, my wife and I had just gotten out of doing a hitch in the Peace Corps in South Africa. And um, I was jobless. And just like a lot of guys getting started, I thought, well, this is a pretty easy, you know, gig to get into. And, you know, it didn't cost a lot. And, and I was cutting firewood at the time to make ends meet. And just one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, we had full-fledged into a company that we started doing relining work in 1979. As a matter of fact, my first liners that we put in were done with a standard sheet stainless steel that we had to roll and crimp and put it together and learn how to make teas and make caps and 
storm collars, all that kind of stuff, because back in those days, there just wasn't anything out there that we could just grab off right away. So it really became a mother necessity. I was selling firewood, and at the same time, we were running across people with some really, really bad-looking chimneys out there. And um, that was the start, was to make sure we start getting doing some relining. Hey, man, that, you know, and that's a good thing to bring up. You just said a classic thing. Back in those days, there was no relining pipe. You know, that takes me back to when I remember when the flexible stainless steel first came out. And a lot of times I'll talk to sweeps in classes and tell them how we used to use rigid pipe, had to open up chimneys. But you said something real interesting. You actually had to roll and make your own tees and stainless steel liner in those days. Did I hear you correctly? You heard me correctly, yeah. We did. That's one of the things once you – I was able to link up with a guy who had a sheet metal shop. And uh, he showed me the patterns and things that were needed to, to do it. And we'd lay out the sheet and get a magic marker and sit there and, cut, you know, make out the marks on the sheet, cut it out, put it to the roller, roll it, and put it together. And, yeah, all that stuff. So, actually, I learned how to become a sheet metal person ever before I even worked on doing anything else. Really? Now, that's interesting because, Tom, I didn't even know that about you. So, just curious, mm-hmm. what kind of metal were you using in those days? Because there wasn't – there was no research done on – metal used as chimney liners. So let me ask you, what did you use? What material did you use? In the good old days, we started out using 304L. Um, I didn't even know we were using L at the time. The sheet metal man I was talking with at at, uh, at his shop, and he said, you know, we're going to use some good material. Let's, let's use something good. So we at that time, we used 304L. 304L. Tell them what the L means, Tom, just so people know that, because they not may not be familiar with what we mean when we say 304L, as in the letter L. If memory serves me right, Jerry, I believe it's for low carbon. That's what my memory, you know, like I said, you're bringing up some things that, you know, these are old times in here. So, you know, you were in the chimney suite businesses. You were up in Pennsylvania, correct? What town did you live in in Pennsylvania again? I lived, I lived in Athens, Pennsylvania. I was right up next to the New York State border. Okay. So, so at the time, Tom, one of the things that I've gotten to know from you was you were one of the first guys that I'm aware of that actually started checking draft with magnahelic gauges, doing that kind of testing, if I remember correctly. So tell me, how did you get into the, your knowledge of all appliances and most importantly, your knowledge of draft magnahelic gauges and those type of things for the performance factor. And I want to emphasize the performance side of this. Sure, Jerry. One of the biggest things that we ran across in Northeast Pennsylvania, um, like a lot of chimney sweeps across the U.S., you had we had fireplaces. But because where I was in that neck of the woods, all my customers, for the most part, were farmers. So all the, all the appliances that I looked at were either wood stoves or wood furnaces, boilers, um, just about pretty much everything under the, under the gambit that was out there. The lucky part about being in Northeast Pennsylvania is I got to sweep coal. I got to sweep uh, work on stoker, coal stokers, regular coal appliances, wood, wood appliances, uh, wood boilers, and wood furnaces. So my, my problems that I ran across is it didn't take too long that I realized that I was also working on a lot of combos. In other words, I was doing oil and gas or, or, or excuse me, oil and wood or, uh, or gas and wood. So drafting, especially with an oil appliance, is, is really pretty critical. So how that all happened is uh, we were lining, this was in 1980 when I took my first class. 
Um, and I took my residential and my commercial uh, class for working on oil furnaces and, or boilers. And in those classes, I actually became an oil burner technician. And through that process, through that education of working with the folks at IBR, learning how to, you know, size and rate an appliance for the size of the house, we also learned how to work on, on oil burner guns and take them apart, put them together, and understand the combustion, understanding where it's supposed to be in the chamber and what size chamber and its effects, and how you also, you know, guard against problems in the, in the heat exchangers and the designs of heat exchangers. So the, the knowledge I got was, was at that time, I think that served me well for the last 40 years, but uh, it was a, that was able to explain to me why draft was so, so important. Because understanding how the, that the influx of air coming into a, a boiler or furnace and how it leaves is paramount to the amount of draft that it, that it works off of. And that's why I learned so much about how to use those gauges and, and I relied on them. Plus it was a really cool thing that I could talk to other oil burner people. Many times I would get uh, referrals from oil companies or the gas companies or whatever and said, hey, we need a chimney relined or whatnot. And I said, give me the particulars. And they would be able to read me four or five numbers. And I said, okay, great. When I got there, I would verify the numbers that they had because I also had an efficiency testing kit along with my draft gauges. And then I could go ahead and I could make sure that I get the same numbers. Or if I found something different, I could call them back and say, hey, George, I was working on this and I got a number of this here, but this isn't what I'm finding right now. Can you get back with the tech and let me know? And, you know, sure enough, we'd find there was something else wrong. And so I had a great relationship working with all the oil and gas people back in Pennsylvania. And, you know, what's great here, Tom, is even back at these early stages, from what I'm hearing, this is probably what developed up your viewpoint on looking at chimneys from performance. Because so often as chimney sweeps, we were trained so often to look at chimneys from a safety standpoint. But yet, even as back in the late 70s and early 80s, before there was even stainless steel pipe you could buy to relight a chimney, you were keyed on performance. And I know that in our teachings together, that's what you and I have promoted for a number of years is performance. Am I hearing this correctly? You are hearing it correctly, Jerry, because one of the things I, I even, at some point in time, I took wood stove appliances, just standard wood stove, sometimes your Vermont castings or some of the Ashley uh, burners, which are coming to mind. But when you would reline these things on a six-inch liner and you went 30, 35 feet with those, you had tremendous draft. And in some situations, I literally would used to put a 12-inch extension and put a barometric damper on the pipe because then I could regulate the amount of air going through the appliance so it wouldn't draw so hard. Literally, there are some situations where you would take a stove and coming out the back of it, going into a standard, you know, thimble chimney, and there's not unheard of to basically get the back of that pipe cherry red because it was pulling way too, fat, way too hard. So I learned that basically by putting a barometric damper on, I could reduce that and make it so the appliance worked properly. Uh, of course, in this day and age, you know, they've, the stove manufacturers have come up with ways of dealing with that. But back in the early days, when you just had a, just a black box and a piece of, you know, a six or eight inch uh, connector on the back of it, there was and an air vent, that's all you had. So, yeah, from, from the training that I learned being, being an oil burner tech, I literally did put um, barometric dampers on. And in one case, actually, if you guys remember the old Franklin Concord uh, catalytic stoves? Oh, yeah. Uh, a couple of those I had. Remember them well. Remember them well. Well, 
several of those would get so, so hot that I would basically put barometric dampers on those. And I would literally watch this, the flame just slowly dance in the firebox as soon as I did it. So, yeah, my training wasn't really on a safety aspect. Well, that was only part of it, but more paramount to that was the fact of how well could I make and how efficient could I make the appliance run. Okay. So let me ask you this. Did you just wake up one night and envision there be a camera that we start putting in chimneys, or was there something you saw, or what influenced you to make that first, I guess you would call it a chimney camera at those days that later became your chim scan, but what drove you to develop the interior video inspection device that we know today is a chim scan? Well, I'll take you back to the early 80s, Jerry. And, you know, wood stoves were, were going out the door. Everybody was selling them. And everybody up in Northeast Pennsylvania was putting outside exterior masonry block chimneys up like they were going out tomorrow. And they were cold. They didn't work well. They creosote. Chimney fires were becoming extremely prevalent. And um, I just happened to be inspecting a chimney for an insurance adjuster. And he was a his, – his, past life before becoming a, an, an adjuster, he owned a masonry crew in Levittown, Pennsylvania. And he's, and I was up there, he said, I want you to take a look at my chimney to make sure it's in good shape. And I was using a mirror and lights and just like everybody else was doing. And I just happened to mention the gentleman, I said, you know, I'm trying to work on something. That, so they get a camera down here so I can kind of take a look at this so I can show you what I'm seeing. And the gentleman was tall and he had long white hair and a long big beard. He looked just like Santa Claus. And he's big, big, dark eyes. He looked at me, his son, he goes, the day you come up with that camera, he goes, you come to my office and show it to me. I said, okay. It took me nine months and a lot of, you know, uh, what you want to call it, doubt. And a lot of, I asked a lot of people about it in, in the video and the CCT, CCTV industry and got a lot of doors closed and phones slammed on me and whatnot. But I finally found a gentleman who would help me with the project. And from that point, it took me another three to four months to understand how I could make the camera focus close up so we could really, really use it on a sidewall. Once we figured that out, and I had the camera system put together, my first phone call was back to that adjuster. And he said to me, he said, where are you right now? And I said, I'm home. He goes, how long will it take you to get to the office? And I said, about 45 minutes. He goes, I'll meet you here. When I got to the, to the insurance, insurance office, he met me at the door, in those days, it was in a foot locker, two monitors. It was pretty good size. We got to his office, and I opened it up, and I showed him how the camera worked. The next thing, this gentleman came up to me, and um, he said to me, uh, Tommy, I want you to meet Mr. Chadwick. I said, hi, Mr. Chadwick. And, and uh, he said, show them what the camera does. And Mr. Chadwick was saying there was a very nice watch on his wrist. And uh, I said, here, let me show you what it can do. And I took the camera, hold it up to his watch. I hit the button. Press the button next thing you know, crystal clear on my nine inch monitor in black and white was Mr. Chadwick's watch. And um, Mr. Souden and, and Mr. Uh, Chadwick looked at me and they kind of nodded and he goes, okay. He said, Tommy says, can you be down here tomorrow? And I said, I can, for how long? He goes, I'll need you for the afternoon. I said, okay. And that began a year and a half process that I would go with Mr. Souden anywhere a hundred miles away from Athens, Pennsylvania to Pauley, Pennsylvania down to to Williamsport, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, as far west as Cattersport, as far north as, as the Spencer, New York. And um, what I would do is I, he would literally, I drove my van with all my equipment, swept the chimney, and I would go ahead and scan the chimney 
and go ahead and do all the um, reports and stuff together to make sh to to do the relines. And uh, in the process of that, I also got to see tractor fires. And I got to see and got an opportunity to spend time and listen to Mr. Salvin and how he worked, you know, doing his job, doing adjusting. So um, yeah, it was it was a it was a great educational process. So I'm presuming, if I remember correctly, that first show, you were in Sleepy Hollow's booth. So I'm guessing mm -hmm. that you got to know Fred, and Fred invited you to go to that first show that I saw you at? Yeah, I did. Matter of fact, once, I, once we started, uh, let's see, I was lying to me for about a year and a half, almost two years, when I finally ran across Fred when he, we came out with his, with his flexible, you know, super, super liner, I guess he called it, or uh, Superflex liner, and uh, then I started using that for for a lot of the offsets and things. Because like you guys down the south, I had a lot of widowmaker chimneys where the chimney was the fireplace was over on one wall, but it came out the center of the house. I had a lot of offsets and whatnot to work through. So um, yeah, it became real handy that I started talking with Fred. And uh, at that time, back in I say eighty and eighty one, we were using vermiculite as the material for insulating liners. Because a lot of guys, it's kind of hard to believe, you know, when you start out working in the colder climates that um, you have an outside exterior chimney. You're trying to keep it warm for the for the actual exhaust to work properly on a stove. You got to insulate it. So I'm really shocked in a lot of ways there was that time period that there's a lot of liners put in chimneys that were unlined uh, that didn't have their insulation around them. And uh, boy, and worry, worry, that just that <laughs> you had to because if not, you just ended up just having the same problem all over again. Only this time it's on your liner. Right. So uh, yeah, so we started. Yeah, so we started insulating liners early on, and I started running across the issues where um, I would. People used to ask me, "So what's the best liner?" And I go, "Well, the one that you can take care of." And so I used to actually I swept chimneys a year or two after uh, we put liners in, and I would go back and I'd verify, put the camera down, take a look at it, and that's when I find out, you know, that how many rivets would hold up, and was the liner doing its job, and, and was was taps working, was hanging liners working, you know, all the things that you tried, whatever it is along the process of this, that we realized that some things work better than others. But the key thing was, is looking up pulling plates, I started realizing that vermiculite was just evaporating. It was, you know, I'd open up top plates, look around, and like, where the heck did this stuff go? So we started looking for some other options, and I happened to link up with a guy in Chicago who was making a liner that was used all through the United States as probably the first prefabricated chimney I think used and tested through UL and it was called vitro liner and it happened to be the um, a porcelainized material with an outside coating of uh, rock wool and another exterior outside coating or the galvo that was painted uh, as an outside um, coating so anyway I was talking to that gentleman about how he came up with the process and we, at that time we we're also using his material his for uh, because the only thing around those days was either metal bestest or this vitro liner because there's nobody else around. And um, we started to realize that we needed some insulation. So on my one of my road trips going down to Long Island, I stopped in New Jersey and I went to an insulation, huge insulation warehouse. The gentleman took me for a ride in a golf cart, went down, came back with a different couple of supplies and materials. I took it on down to uh, to Fred and showed it to him. And he goes, oh, this, I said, no, Fred, trust me, this stuff is better. So we went ahead and we did the first liners that we that uh, Fred ever used uh, ceramic blanket for. And um, then that time, then Fred was using it. And later on, when I worked at Copperfield, and went through, they started using ceramic blankets. So, yeah, I kind of pioneered that one, too. And, and uh, 
and at least the insulation stays where it's supposed to. Yeah, you know, you were talking about something a while ago, and how well I remember this. You were talking about pouring dry vermiculite in. We were pouring dry perlite in down here because perlite's much more common. In fact, there's a perlite plant not far from here. So yeah, I remember those days. I remember pouring perlite. I remember people calling, and we got snow coming out the top of the chimney, had it leaking through the joints. Uh, used to people say we'd line a chimney a couple of days later. Somebody would call and say, "Hey, I don't know what's going on, but there's there's snow in my yard because perlite's white." But yeah, and I can remember a lot of chimneys that luckily we had a power back and we sucked a lot of dry perlite out of these chimneys over the years, okay? Because I guess with vermiculite, it being gray, it kind of blended in the yard, but <clears throat> perlite did not blend in well at all. But you know, that's interesting, Tom, <laughs> that you know, you actually were on the forefront of ceramic wool. And like I said, when we say the name Fred Schuchel, a lot of people may not know this, but Fred devised a pipe, and it was from exhaust pipe on trucks, just laying it out there, but it was a flexible stainless steel liner. He called it Superflex, and that was the first stainless steel liner. In fact, Bob Daniels talked about that last year and even credited uh, you know, Fred with being one of the, of the prominent uh, developers of products in the entire history of this uh, country. Because, you know, today, everybody's using flexible everywhere. We went through a period that was vast, a lot of rigid. We went through periods combining rigid. We went through periods developing insulation. Uh, the difference in the UL, the, you know, UL listings and all that. So this is like a history course, man. This is the, We need to be given CEUs for this, probably. So let me ask you this. There came a day that you started selling cameras, and then all of a sudden, undoubtedly, there became a day that you stopped sweeping chimneys for a living. What was that that drove that decision, Tom? Well, so if I wanted to clock down a little bit farther, we, it was probably about 1984 when we, we, I'd had my first camera in 83, and I'd had good nine months to a year of working with it. By that time, uh, we would, we had grown the company to Esther, myself, and, and a helper, and sometimes two helpers. And uh, by the time I got out of business in 80, 1985, I had probably lined somewhere around 200 to 225 chimneys. And um, so I'd had a lot of experience on ovals. And matter of fact, the first oval pipe we used, I used my log splitter to help me to, to oval it. Because you know, that heavy flex, you don't exactly just bend that with your fingers. It's pretty tough stuff. So um, so we'd, we had used a variety of different ways and, and chimneys that we worked with. And I think the longest one I did was 66 feet. Um, we also came up with the winch too, that uh, because I work with my wife a lot, so and I wasn't going to take you know 200 pounds of pipe up on the roof. So how we worked that out is we would take out seven brick out of the bottom of the chimney, put the winch on top, lower it down, put the winch on on to the uh, liner, and then we would just winch the liner from the bottom in the attic and put it back in the chimney, and and finish it off with a T and a clean out door. So we 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 worked on the winches because just <laughs> I had to help out Esther. The, um, so yeah, by the time it all kind of, the camera came around in, in 84, um, it, we, I had to make that, that choice for that decision. I thought I had built a better mousetrap and I thought I'd like to be a manufacturer instead of a chimney sweep. Um, and I thought, and the opportunity came for me to also at that same time to also take a job working as the tech advisor for Copperfield. So um, yeah, we just kind of run it all together and realized that I could still continue building the cameras 
um, and work at Copperfield. So it was in 1985 is when we moved out here to Fairfield. Yeah, and I think people need to know, Superflex was not Thin Flex, was it, Tom? No, it was not Thin Flex. No, at one time, Thin Flex, we didn't recognize the corrugated pipe in this industry. Venonox probably was in the forefront of that. And now I would say that corrugated pipe is probably the number one used type of stainless steel in the country today. Would you agree with that? Yeah, most, yeah, it is, Jerry. It probably, it, it's gone from the, the early days, I think it was in 83 or so, so that Martin Vavilov came up with the UL classification for his liner, and he was using Ventnox. And that was a good material, but it was not really what you call real super flex. So it was tough to bend. Oh, man, I used to be Ventnox. Well, it would come to us in a roll, kind of, but it was a big roll. And we actually had a fire hydrant and a telephone pole that was exactly far enough apart in front of our store in those days. And that's where we straightened out the pipe to get it uncurled. Because yeah, when it was put into a curve, I would call it an unforgiving curve. Remember those? Yes, I do. Yeah, I wasn't exactly what you call it. They called it flexible, but boy, I tell you. You need a lot. Of, you need a lot of people to help you bend it straight. That's it. You know, we talk about day, and I see guys talk about a slammer. Oh God, I found us. I had a slammer, or this, or whatever. And it was guys like you, Tom, that developed a lot of methods and ways. I remember you telling me one time about your development of flugu, and you were looking for a refractory for Copperfield to sell, which became flugu. But you were playing with all these different types of. Uh, a furnace and high temperature cements and you said you found the right stuff and you went running down the hallway at Copperfield with this big arm with this big handful of, of this uh flu goo right you remember that uh, yeah sure I vaguely remember but I do remember something about playing around the flu goo things like hey we got some good stuff here yeah because you know get Tom all excited there and then he gets real passionate about it so let me go to the next one <laughs> you know you're sure. known you know Tom the thing is you're known for the chim scan you're telling stories of, you know, ceramic wool development, stainless steel performance standards. But overall, I'm going to rate you as an expert in chimney inspections. So what I need to know is, you and I taught classes together. We taught D&D classes together for many years. We, taught, we designed, you and I and Paul Anderson and Ashley together, we developed up what we call the advanced D&D, which was a week-long class, and we taught people how to write narrative reports, and now we're going to all kinds of software systems. So tell me, tell me what you think this industry has been through in the area of chimney inspections, and it's also taking into account the inspection standards of 2000 that a lot of people may not know, but I believe you worked with that committee on developing the, the, the 2000 edition of the level one, level two, level three chimney inspection. So tell me what you've seen in our past as far as how chimney technicians inspect chimneys. What what have we been through to this point? Well, if I take it down memory lane, what we had was a three-part uh, NCR form. I know Copperfield, the other distributors still to this day have those. And it was a satisfactory, unsatisfactory. But we all realized as an industry in the mid 80s that we needed to come up with a better process. And as time went on, um, I can think about, by, oh, I'd say about, you could probably, 93, 94, when the first real conversation started to happen concerning that we needed to come up with a, a, a process. In other words, we, we had to come up with some way of being able to inspect chimneys. 
and uh, that would be uniform so that we'd all come up with the same answer instead of you know 5,000 different answers. So that was that was a start, and then I know there were some lawsuits that it, that had happened. Chimney sweeps were on, were getting sued because of uh, poor practices, and um, and a lot of other things had gone along with that. But it was '97 when it was, uh, '96, '97 when they formulated. Well, actually, the first part was the white paper with with you, Jerry, putting that together. Once that was set up, then then you began to do the the D and Ds. But um, um, yeah, maybe I get ahead of myself here because we had the standard before we did the D and Ds. No, um, actually, no. We started doing the D and Ds in the mid '90s, and the standard came out in 2000, Tom. So when we this was one, of, if you remember yeah. right, when we started teaching the D and Ds in those days, we discouraged the use of the word inspection because inspection had never been clearly defined. So we were actually teaching chimney sweeps in the mid '90s. Uh, one of the processes was was the word evaluation, not inspection as a means of lowering the incidence of subrogation. Do you, does that sound yeah. right to you? Yeah, that's that, now I remember that, because yeah, we had, it was like in 95 when the D&D started, and by, by 2000 that the, the form came out. In 97, I remember being part of the committee, and we started working on that, because we had to have it done by 99 so that it could hit the book for the 2000. And um, yeah, I remember being in a room with Jim Brewer and Ashley and Jack Pixley, um, Dave Johnson, myself, uh, Pete Luter, uh, Royal Edwards, just this name of most of the people that were in that room in Boston as we hammered out the last details and, and Dave got them put together. He and Jim worked on that to get that together for the standard. But as far as that is, we're, we're trying to get a uniformity within the industry. And I, it was after it was after um, doing the D&Ds, the, the advanced D&Ds, that I noticed that as hard as we had come up with the standard, there still didn't seem that there was a disconnect with everybody concerning doing the level one and level twos. And I, I started at that time making sure that uh, trying to come up with a standard or a way that we could uh, come up with a, a uniform way that a company could do that. Because the future of this industry is going to be based on its ability to get uniform data into the company so that you can evaluate it and you can understand where you're going to go. So tell me how reporting defects that are found in the field. How has that changed over the years, Tom? The first part, I guess, is understanding that they are defects. Um, that sounds kind of funny, but a lot of guys just, just swept chimneys and collected their money and went down went up the road. Later on is the, you know, the use of cameras and realizing that there's a lot of uh, defects within the chimneys themselves that, that re remained unseen. And observation techniques through the classes through NCSG and CSIA through the years you know, trying to hone your, your skills as far as being a, um, a good observer. You know, somebody's out there to really take a look at things. So, you know, and along with that, then later on, Dale Fab came up with his course for, for the, he has for the, the fire course that also enhanced the, the, the capabilities of uh, greater observation skills out there in the field. Yeah. And so, you know, you and I, we've worked a lot of seminars. You and I have taught all over the U.S., developed, and we got to know each other very, very well. And back around 2010, 2009, you started working on a standardized reporting system. Why'd you start doing this, Tom? What was it for you to build a standardized format that people in this industry could use? Why do you see that was needed? The answer is really pretty simple, Jerry. It was watching the, watching the faces of the people as they left the class from doing that advanced D&D. 
I realized that they all wanted to do the narrative report. They all liked the, the, the way they're doing it, but they weren't gonna, they weren't gonna spend the time or the effort putting together a way that they could, they could do it properly. And that caused, that caused me to put my thinking cap on and said, there's gotta be an easier way that we can get this work done, collect the data that we want and, and put it together to the customer. So the customer, not the sweep, the customer understands why you're telling him there's something that needs to be corrected in this chimney. Okay. So you said earlier the word data. I want you to go a little deeper in the data. Tell me how data can guide your business. Tell me how data can give you the information you need to be a more successful business. The best answer, how I learned about data is one is, is once we started working on creating a uniform uh, inspection process, um, when you get a hold of the computer people, then you want to put it together a database, they're going to want to, they want to know some very, what the end result is. What is the end in mind? I know you start out with one aspect, you want to follow here, then you take another perspective you go through. But every time you change and go through a different perspective, you either lose what you have or you got to start all over again. And when you're building a database, that is very expensive. The other thing that came that I started to learn about data is when I had consultants come to my company here and go through things and how to rate the company. In other words, we can all look at the comp, all look at different, and I'm, which you do all the time, Jerry, look at people's companies and what they're doing at. And you yourself will realize that you have to come up with a uniform process that everybody then can be rated either up or you know, high or low so that you have an idea where their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are going to come from. So after having our, our company rated and gone through this process, I realized that the real answer, the real data, isn't what you see in the bottom of your P&L statement. The real data comes down to the forms of how quickly you get jobs done. What is your return? How many return rates you have? What is the defects that you see? What are the common defects that you see? Um, how many times that you something breaks in the field or you know, we, we fix people's cameras all the time. And it's interesting, you know, how time goes. There's, there's a pattern with different individuals that we know we follow and we make recommendations. So that kind of, that kind of data is the stuff that people want to buy. They're really not interested in what's on your truck. And they're really not interested maybe sometimes in how you do business, but it's really the amount of data or things that you have that allow, allow the company to actually prosper and grow. That's what makes big companies what they are is they're watching trends. And that's basically looking at a uniform process of, of collect data collection and they watch it over a period of time. And that tells you whether you're growing or you're not growing. Well, data tells you a lot of stuff. It's like now today we have a job category in America that's called a data scientist. And these are people that analyze data. And what they can do is many times when people launch new products, they bring a data scientist in and they study the data over the consumers or whatever and, you're, and they're able to predict what sales will be. They're able to predict when the market. So collection of data as a business coach, I will tell you, he's dead on the money here. So that, Tom, let's look a little bit to the future, okay? So sure. Esteban is not just Tom Urban. Esteban is Tom, it is Esther, and it is Shelly, and it's some real dedicated people there. And I've been to your facility. I was out in Fairfield a couple years ago came over that day, saw your operation, saw where you had made a lot of changes in the way you operate uh, based on customer input. 
uh, went more towards standardized units, a lot of things that you've changed. So, you know, you've got, you've got a really good team there. So let me ask you this. What do you see for the future of ChimScan? And who's going to be this future, future leadership? Hey, we're getting older. We can tell all these stories that go back 30 years, 40 years. But what's the future hold for ChimScan and Esteban, Tom? We started our we started our process in in 2004, Jerry, when I had our first uh, coaching company come in and, and work with us, and it all started about with a customer asking or telling us that you know we use your equipment all the time and it's become a, a, a keystone on, on how we do business is using your equipment. So the question we have for you, Tom and Esther, is what's going to happen if you guys decide to quit? And it kind of hit us right between the eyes because we really never really gave it a thought. But it definitely put some wheels in motion, and we, we put some money behind it. We had some coaches come in. In 2013, we finalized the Nexus strategy. We worked on that. We worked on production schedules, and we also worked on creating an uh, employee manual. But part of that process while they were here for two weeks was to, was to create a, what, do I, what does Tom want to do and what does Esther want to do as time goes on. And as we went through the process, we looked at also the numbers that were going to be needed, and we realized through all our time and efforts, like everybody else, you never really quite have a whole bunch of the money put away, and you like to have a million dollars there put away, but a lot of folks don't have that asset. And one of the things that our coach talk, talked to us about was the fact of actually owning a small business. And a small business can take you into retirement very, very well. It can give you a five-digit income at the same time, continue the services you know, required and needed in your community. But it will require that you set it up in such a way that as I asked, as they asked me, I'll, I'll tell you what, he, what I told them. He said, Tom, how do you want to retire? And I said, Carl, I thoroughly love what I do. I really, really just do it. But as older I get, if I don't want to work today, I want to be in a place that I don't have to. If I want to take two weeks off, I can do it. And he goes, okay, that's a plan. So now we know number-wise and also setup-wise that, that as I get older, the more I want to back out of the company, I can realizing that as I do, that I will be needing middle management people uh, to help me through, which means that changes the, our costs and will also change the over, over output of the company. But it would uh, allow me the freedom that I want. So, um, and also the other thing we did too to protect our customers is I have also set up a key man insurance program so that if should something happen to me, if I get hit by a bus, there's revenue coming in here for Esther and the, and the rest of the family here so that um, we can continue on. And it would also give Esther a couple of years to, to, to figure out whether or not I'm, I'm dead or, or I'm just disabled um, so that, so that the, continue, the company will continue. So we put all those things in, in action. So right now, Jerry, we're, we're working on basically the second part of it is you know, keying up. My daughter's taking a, a huge interest in the company and we're keying up with, with Shelly. She's, she's taking it into do, new areas. We're definitely working so much better on social media than I could ever do. And she's also working in 3D printing, and uh, we've, we've also got, got the basis for several of those machines up and running right now. So um, as far as the creativity side's taken care of, we're doing well. As far as the out of management of things, they're, they're coming along pretty well. And as, as usual, like everything else, as things change on, you always keep continually working on your process of uh, trying to cut costs and, and you know, make, things, make, make things better. Okay, so it's safe to say GM scan. Is going to be around for a lot of years. Esteban is going to be around for a lot of years. And Esteban is much more than Tom Urban. Esteban is a team of people. And 
you've really made a lot of contributions. So I'm going to ask you my last question here, Tom. And the question's going to be kind of open-ended. But, I, you know, you're a guy that was around before there was stainless steel pipe. You're a guy that was around before there was insulation, before there was ceramic wool. And you developed a lot of things. And I think a lot of people listening to this today will hear some things about you they didn't know before, Tom. And I think they're going to, I think what you've showed them is going to increase a lot of respect for Tom Urban and your contributions to this industry. So my last question to you, Tom, you have the ability at this point to change, to say your words of wisdom. Tell me what you would tell this industry that if it wants to thrive, if it wants to grow, what does this industry have to do in the words of Tom Urban, sir? I think the first thing that people are going to have to understand is they do have the capabilities of owning a business. Now, for the guy who wants to be a single operator and, um, you know, he has a sibling or wife or, or a partner or whatever that has another job and this is a secondary income, that's one thing. But this industry can avail itself so that people can, and which has quite been proven over the last, last few years, to run it to several million dollars a year. The real key thing, I guess, is where the future is going to go really comes down to, one, looking at your data and finding out a uniform way to do it. One of the biggest mistakes I see people do is they try to take a one-man operation and all of a sudden add two, three, four people to it and think that it's going to be run like a one-man operation. It causes so much pain, so much frustration on everybody's part. Marriages can be lost from it. Uh, things can fall apart. I mean, the, the, the consequences of this can be very serious. So I think people need to understand that they have to work on the uniformity of how, they, how and what they do. That, again, is going to go through people like yourself, Jerry, coaching to get the standard operating procedures, doing their SWOT, and try to figure out who and what they are. The second thing is they have to figure out who they are. That sounds silly, but it's really quite true. What do you want to do? What do you love? What is it that you like about the business? One of the things I've seen through the years lately is see a lot of people are pushing sales. And sales are great. I mean, without sales, the business doesn't run. Without cash, you know, nothing's going to happen. But the key thing is I think we've lost a little bit of the flavor that what are you in business for? You know, what is it that, that makes you you? What is it? What can you do for your client? Um, I am constantly reminded about what I can do for my customers. If something's not right, can we make it right? If we messed up, can I get it? Can, what can I do to make it right? Um, and also just understanding the needs of, your, uh, needs of your customer. I think we're spending a little bit too much time on us, and we're not talking about what we really can do for our customer. Um, we have learned in several in, in the last five, six years, when people talk about the problems and difficulties of millennials, well, like, like all of you, I, I had difficulties until I changed my attitude and realized that millennials are going to be our market and they can be a very good market, providing that you change your process. And as you mentioned to me the other day, telling them why they need, why things are happening is very important. And that's why I put all the descriptive language together in the inspection program that I have is because you need to understand why, why this isn't working and why you need to do something about it instead of, um, you've got a bad problem. Give me $2,400 before I come to my senses. Uh, yeah, so I think you're, you're, we really need to spend some time understanding our customers' needs. I, it, it's, um, it amazes me to this day if I sit down and watch television at some point in time in a commercial, someone's either trying to pitch a, a moonwalker or, or, or some kind of exercise equipment, there's a fireplace. You know, somebody talks about their, their cell phone, there's a fireplace. 
it just amazes me that we've ingrained this in the, in the American psyche so well that we really need to address that. And I think the third thing that I would like to say is that people, sweeps out there, have to understand one thing, that they are the keepers of the flame. It's their job to make sure that flame stays where it's supposed to stay. It's nobody else's responsibility. They've, they've accepted the fact of being professionals. Your job is to make sure the flame stays where it's supposed to be. So you need to explain that to the customer, why it can or what are the possibilities that it's not going to stay there and something else could happen. So that helps to add to a level of professional, professionalism as, as this industry grows. Do I see a future? Oh, by gosh, I surely do. Um, I mean, there's so many products out there now that, that I didn't have starting out, and it's amazing how many different connections, adapters, and styles of pipe and things that, that were out there that I just dreamed about, you know, 30-some years ago when I was lining chimneys. So I, that's where I think I'd probably put it, Jerry, as I see a very bright future. But I think if you're really looking for a bright future is look to your customer because they got the answer. All you got to do is you got to listen. You know, that's a good one, Tom, and that's a great way. You know, I've come up with three different thoughts and three words, and I use these quite often, and I am basing a lot of seminars on these three words. And they are they are the following. They are communication, and communication is 80% listening. You're dead on the money. Number two is understanding. And what you just said was, rhymes right with that. You have to understand what your customer wants. That's the most important thing, because unless you understand what your customer wants, then how are you going to intrigue them to give you an invitation to their home if you don't understand what they want? And number three is your actions. You said earlier, uh, my coaches came in, uh, you know, and you listened. I can remember you telling me one time, a man that we both respect no longer with is Dave Pomeroy, and you had Dave come over, and Dave taught you the wisdom of just where your screwdriver needed to be replaced, how much time and money you were losing because there wasn't a screwdriver. Do you remember that conversation, Tom? I certainly do. As a matter of fact, of all the money, I think Esther and I have spent close to ninety or $100,000 in coaching programs and probably the best money we've, we've spent on the, on the low-key, you know, get-started stuff was with, was with Dave Palmer and the, and the lean. It was. It's simple processes. But what you got to do, and you touched on this, it's called pain. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about, and it's a point of view, are you going to continue and with the pain you're suffering, or do you want to go through the pain of change? Because once you undergo the pain of change, the pain will go away. Would you agree with my words there, Tom? It does. And actually, the funny part about about change, Jerry, it's, it's basically is your attitude. You know, once you figure out that this is a good thing for everybody and you forget about me and you start thinking about the rest of the rest of your company um, or your customers, somehow the pain doesn't feel nearly as bad. And the rewards and the peace that it creates within the individual owners themselves is tremendous. It really is. Okay. Well, Tom, I want to appreciate you taking your time out of a busy, busy schedule today because you're always working on projects there. You got things going. Uh, let's, let's finish it off. Somebody wants to get in touch with Esteban Chimscan. Give me your website. Tell me where they look to find you, Tom. They can find us at uh, chimscan.net. We've got, um, web, the website's been up for quite some time. You can reach us with our, um, here in, in Fairfield. Nothing else. They can reach us on, um, uh, social media through Facebook. Um, what else is there? 
Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm lost for words on that one, Jerry. Yeah. And the neat thing is, Shelly can help you. Esther can help mm -hmm. you. You don't have to talk to Tom. In fact, you may be better off talking to Shelly. Would that be correct? That's a very correct. There's a time that I, it's much easier to talk to my daughter than it is to me these days. It really is. So anyway, Tom, Tom I want to appreciate it. I want to appreciate your friendship, appreciate your mentorship to me. I hope I've been a help to you over the years. So I really, really you appreciate it. This has been like going through a history. I, like I said, maybe we should file for CEUs on this thing. But we got it out there. Hopefully you learn a little bit today. So this has been the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network. It's sponsored by CVC Coaching. Look us up on the internet. We're www.cvccoaching.com. You can also find information about us at jerryeisenhower.com. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram. Follow us on our YouTube channels. And keep a watch out because we're getting ready to roll our brand new educational platform. And it is going to be nothing short of phenomenal. We have a completely new platform that's going to be rolling out in the coming weeks. We'll be at some shows upcoming. You'll find it. We'll be at HPBA this week. Uh, we've got the certified, the CCP show. I'm doing a presentation there. Tom's doing a presentation there. Also, be at the NCSG show. And I'll be traveling around the U.S. over the summer doing a lot of classes all around the country. We've got a two-day online session coming up on chimney diagnosis and analysis on March 21st and 22nd. It's an online class. You can participate online in a live stream virtual mode, or you can, after it's, uh, after it's been up, it will be recorded. You can purchase it on our educational platform. Our goal, our mission at CBC is to help our clients and the entire industry turn their business dreams into their business realities. So from here, this is Jerry Eisner closing out for today. I appreciate you joining me, and we'll look forward to joining us for a future episode of the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us here each week at the Chimney and Fireplace Success Network, sponsored by CVC Coaching, providing you the coaching and educational outreach services you need to move to your dream destination in business and in life.